Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Tong, Tong. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk El Alamein Week. Um, uh, when finally it is upon us all. It's upon James and I, James Holland and I, and of course the Panzer Armee. It's the second Battle of El Alamein. We've been working our way towards this. I'm feeling quite tense about it myself. <laughs> How's it going to play out? How will What's going to happen? Will it, how will it play out as uh, two <laughs> essentially mismatched armies face one another? Um, uh, so we've done um, the Gazala Stakes, the fall of Tobruk, um, first Battle of Alamein, Alam Halfa, um, the American perspective, uh, background regrouping, why the Orc had to go, why um, Alex and Monty are the dream team. The dream um, team, the dream team. <laughs> um, and, and also how absolutely uh, diabolically it's going for um, Rommel, actually. Um, yes. And that, that we have this thing that the that Seesaw has plunked firmly down on the Allies' side now. And uh, he can't get the stuff, he can't get the intel. Um, essentially, Rommel, in a strange way, is is – high and dry, because he, he's not being given the panzers, the tigers or whatever he's asked for. He's not the priority, but he is the priority of 8th Army. And that's that's what we're at. We're at the climactic yes, battle. we are. Um, and, and before, just, just to spin out, just a teeny, <laughs> teeny, teeny bit longer. <laughs> Terrible. We never really talk about, about the Italians except to say they're rubbish. Um, and, and we know that that's not true because there's people in, in those Italian divisions who yep. are experience and know what they're about but i think i think yeah. what you can say is that with a you know their submachine guns for example are, are superb um yep. they have certain guns which are absolutely fine but they also have a lot of stuff which isn't their tanks are kind of under under armored underpowered um a lot of their artillery is is sort of you know an earlier vintage which is frankly kind of out of date yep. they've got absolutely nothing like the 25 pounder They've got anti-tank guns, but nothing in a, on a par with a kind of, you know, pack 40 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and it is absolutely the case that the, that the command is absolutely rotten at the very core. The top, the political system is rotten. The training is is rotten. They don't have, you know, if, if, if Germany is struggling for resources, Italy's problems are, are e- even worse. And I, and I think when one looks at accounts of Italians, Fighting out there in Alamein, it, it is it is really interesting. And one of the guys I got to got to read, whose diary I got to read, was a chap called Giuseppe Santiniello. Um, and he was had aspirations to be a lawyer before the war came along. He was from Avellino, which is not very far from from um, Naples. It's where where the eighty second land um, in Operation Avalanche the following year. Um, and he's twenty two. He's been in. Uh, he's an artilleryman. He's been an officer in the artillery. He's been in um, in Yugoslavia, but he was very interesting about his training because you know he. And the other thing is, of course, is that the Italians tend to kind of they're not like British or Germans where they kind of underplay things. They massively overplay stuff. Well, no, I mean I, the the stuff you've got here in the notes, Jim. I, I think he's um he's being honest. 
and he's expressing it <laughs> oh, in a... He in, says, in an a, inventor of tortures could not have dreamed of anything worse. And, um, you know, he, he's, he, you know, he goes to this... No, he's talking he about the latrines kind of, in that instance. Yeah, he's talking about the latrines, but he's also talking about the whole barracks, the whole system, you know, they're surrounded by thievery, um, the toilets are a mess, the food is awful, the training's terrible and old-fashioned, they don't learn anything, yeah. really. Um, and, you know, he, he, he is joined up originally with high hopes and full of kind of, you know, the patria and, you know, the whole Mussolini bullshit and all the rest of it. And, and all of that is completely crushed. He goes, very super, hopes and dreams crumbled, replaced by the awful reality of having to live in the midst of this filth and surrounded by criminals. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not a great start to your army career. It, it, it really isn't. And, and by the time he goes out to North Africa, he's posted as an officer in the 9th Battery of the 21st Artillery Regiment, which is part of the Trento Division. Um, he doesn't really know an awful lot, to be honest. You know, he doesn't know a lot. Um, he's not particularly well trained. Um, he knows how to fire a gun, uh, uh, and that's about it. And when he gets out there, you know, the morale is terrible. And, it, and it's doubly worse because Italian rations are even worse than German rations. And they know that their allies in battle think of them as total pieces of yeah. shit. I mean, yeah. you know, their, their, their contempt is incredibly obvious. Yeah. And, you know, that's not a good way on which to, 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 to function and the problem is is not only are they short of of, of food and um, of fuel particularly they're also food uh, uh, they're also particularly short of water uh, and, and this is a, a real problem and i was reminded looking back over my uh, my personnel notes that i have for this period this guy called tenente luigi marchese um uh who is in the Folgore division, which is a, one of the airborne divisions, which is down right down at the south, near the map feature, opposite the, the fighting French, as they're now called. Uh, and Marchese finds one of his men crying, and he's been so thirsty that he's drunk his own urine, uh, and then his throat has swollen up. That is not a good good foundation. You know, again, we, you know, we're talking about the three M's. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's not yeah, looking your, good for There's them. your morale. That's that gone. Yeah, exactly, which makes everything yeah. else more difficult. Uh, also, I mean, it, raw numbers, the Duke forces are something like 195,000 strong, aren't they? On, on, on the, at the front, yeah. At the front, yeah. I mean, I mean teeth here. Yeah. Um, and the the uh, Axis forces are something like 115,000. So they're, they, are out, they are outnumbered. The Allies have twice the tanks in raw terms. And oh, I think have, a bit more than that. I think a bit more uh, than yeah, that. I think, think Monty has about 1,200 by the time. And it's, new it's ones too. So the, yes. the thing we've talked about that's been seeded all the way through this, 300 Sherman tanks have been diverted um, and sent. And just as the um, when the grants arrive, the, the, um, the, the uh, uh, Duke soldiers, the armoured soldiers, absolutely love the grant because it's spacious inside compared to British, yeah. British tank. And it's reliable. Because um, uh, the, the, the American tank design, you stow your stuff inside the tank or you, there's room inside the tank. And a British tank, you have stowage basket, you know, uh, things outside, bins on the outside of the tank because you're crammed in yep. and you, your stuff yep. goes outside. Whereas, the, you know, the, the, the grant is necessarily a roomy thing with the, yep. with the, with the, 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 you know, the artillery piece in the sponson and then the cannon mm -hmm. in, the, in the turret. And they but, – but the Shermans are next along. So they've got modern, roomy, reliable – Proper firepower, 
a match for the handful of Panzer Fours because there aren't very many Panzer Fours. No, I, I mean, mean you're talking, you know, two dozen. Like yeah, that. I mean it's the, really the, the issue many. actually is anti tank <clears> weapons um, in the yeah. desert, um, not not tanks, but but well, in, as Tuca in, says, the the preeminent weapon of the desert battlefield is not the tank; it's the anti tank gun. Yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, more and more, um, more armored cars, aircraft. Um, it's it's slightly in the Axis' favour, but uh, only what, on fighters. Only on, on, fighters. on fighters. But what they're not doing is, is what they've not done is is rejigged to a tactical thing with their fighters the way that the Allies have. Yeah. So the Desert Air Force necessarily has an advantage in that respect. How are we doing uh, um, artillery? Um, well, that's that's sort of 908 guns that Monty has, uh, field yeah. guns. Um, most of those are 25-pounders compared yeah. to 200. So that's a kind of, what, 3.7 to 1 advantage, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I mean, a sort of, you know, a 2 to 1 numerical advantage is, is by most people's reckoning, not a, a, a decisive advantage no. in manpower you know you'd expect to attack with three to one or four to one um you know as we know later on in the war you know the russians are only attacking if they've got a 10 to one or even 40 to one advantage <laughs> so you know well at casino not, then casino not, there's a an eight to one advantage at one point isn't it, it doesn't work either so yeah um, uh, but, but, uh, but as we all know numbers on everything and and it's it's method um uh, which leads us sort of neatly onto kind of what so what is monty's plan then what 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 is his his way of, of of doing things. Well, he wants to he wants to crumble the enemy, doesn't he? That's the, <laughs> the, this, this fantastic Monteism that he's going to crumble um, yes. uh, uh, the German front until and that's he can be part of the dogfight. <laughs> and as long as the chaps are full of binge, um, yeah. <laughs> everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah. But he's going to attack in two parts, isn't he? He's going yeah. to attack in two places. So the interesting thing about the, about the way the minefields have worked themselves out is there's millions of them. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting because when I, when I first went around there in whenever it was, 2005, 2004, something like that, there were still piles of these mines everywhere. I mean, literally, you, you went down the kind of, you know, the, the uh, Springbok track or the, the, the Sidi El Rahman track or something like this. You know, you go, you, you go down them and there were, every so often there'd be piles where the Egyptian army had obviously cleared all this stuff up and there were just piles of mines. I mean, there were just zillions of them. And, but so there is this, they're, they're generally pretty thick, um, you know, sort of a couple of miles thick. But then weirdly, what the Axis have done is they've created this finger. So below... Alam Halfer, below the Alam Nile feature, because Alam Halfer actually is firmly in the British lines at this point. So, so well south of Rue Isert, yeah. um, there is this finger that extends about 10 miles to the west. And that's like a dividing line. So Monty wants to do a faint attack with 7th Armoured Division, the, uh, the, old, the old school Desert Rats, um, uh, 13 Corps, which is yep. under Horrocks, who's just come in, one of Monty's men. Uh, and they're going to attack through, and that's going to be a sort of a feint. But the main assault is going to be in the north, around the Ruwaisat Mitaraya Ridge. Um, so coming south of Ruwaisat, but but straight into the Mitaraya. So basically, but through through the hands of the clock, through the hands so, of the clock, exactly. So to come exactly in along the top that. of the Ruwaisat Ridge and then swing up. Round, in fact, which is the reverse of the reverse of what the Africa Corps did. Um, uh, uh, or tried to do in the first Battle of Alamein, isn't it? Exactly. They, that. they swung through there, except uh, it, so. Um, yeah, so, so they're going to come up kind of sort of, you know, one is going to be going, is going to be pointing, if you're thinking of your clock, one of them is going at nine o'clock, hmm. north of the Mitaraya Ridge, 
and the other one is going at sort of half past seven o'clock for the big hand going across the Mitaraya Ridge. And there's going to be a general advance over a 10-mile stretch. But the key of this, of course, is, is there's all these mines. Most of the mines are anti-tank, not anti-personnel. So infantry can walk over it without too much problem. It's armour that can't. So how do you get around this? Well, you, you create two channels. And each of those channels through this 10-mile stretch in the north, will each have three lanes of eight yards wide. And each of those three lanes will be codenamed Sun, Moon, Star. And you'll know you're in Sun, Moon, and Star because both the, 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 lines will, the lanes will be taped, this eight-yard stretch. And let's face it, eight yards is not very long. It's about width of a tennis court, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that. Um, and... They'll be taped, and then there'll be little lanterns all the way a long way, made out of out of tins of fruit, and they'll have stamped in them a sun and a moon and a star, and they'll be lit. And you'll go, oh, well, I can see a star shining through that one, so that yep. means I'm in the we're star, star. track. Yeah. So you know you're in the right place. And that's how they're going to get through. And what's going to happen is you're going to have this minefield task force. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like a lot of work for the uh, Corps of Royal Engineers. Um, that there's an so awful Sappers lot of- first. Yeah. With, the, with the mine task force, which is going to be from the corps de chasse, which is going to be from 10 Corps. It's going to be these motorized infantry and, and anti-tank gunners. They're going to move forward, lead forward the, the tanks, and the infantry either side of them are going to get push forward. They're going to get through the minefields um, to an imaginary line called Oxalic, which is between three and five miles from the start point. And the start line is obviously a decent size before the stretch before the minefield so so the actual minefield itself is probably you know three three miles and the advance up is two so that's the plan and the bulk of the british armor and the and the vehicles of 10 corps will go through these tracks and then burst out and the infantry are going to have the job of dealing with the enemy infantry so that the the, the corps de chasse 10 corps this all-arms formation will then be able to deal with the panzers, primarily the panzers of the of the Africa Corps. Yeah. Although <laughs> not all the Africa Corps is up in the north. Yeah. So 15th Panzer and 164th Light are in the north with part and, of the Trento Motorized Division. And 90th and Light in, in reserve as well, aren't they? And then 100, yeah, 164th yeah. and Light. And the 21st Panzer are down below in below that long that long 10-mile line of of minefield, which is extending on a kind of east-west access to the west, and that's that's the plan. But but preempting this is obviously going to be a barrage. Yeah. And so what you've got, you've got your nine hundred eight guns, and they're going to be firing along a very, you know, along the front. And the idea is that there will be a, a, a 15, 20 minute barrage just before midnight, or just before ten o'clock, or eleven o'clock, or whatever time it is, on the twenty on the night of the twenty third of October. Once that barrage is over, then there will be a creeping barrage, which will move forward 100 yards every three minutes, behind which the attackers will advance. Sounds to me like someone was a staff officer in the First World War. Um, well, it's all sounding very Western <laughs> Front, isn't it? Let's face Sounds it. to me a little like the guy in charge might be bringing some of his um, old homework with him. Um, uh, 
yes, uh, the the what what's clearly, um, uh, I mean, it's a it's a five and a half hour shoot, though, isn't it? The, the the fire plan. It's a big it's a big shoot they they put in. Yeah, isn't it? Um, yep. You know, uh, every gun firing something like six hundred shells. You know, yep. which is more than half a million shells by the time they're done. Which is, you know, if if you want a simple thing that's a calling card for allied material dominance at this point there it is you know it's um uh so uh, but the obviously there are people who criticize the fire plan uh after the event but well we, we can maybe come to that in a little bit <laughs> maybe maybe we should describe what happens first and then we can then we can <laughs> analyze whether it was the right plan <laughs> well so so but, but also the RAF of course has been doing softening up beforehand attacking yeah, yeah. lines of communications yep. hammering the hammering the rear areas all that kind of stuff to trying trying to kind of you know really really hamper um access supplies coming up feeding the front uh, which he does very successfully yeah um our, our good old friend Tommy Elmhurst who's the um you know number 2 to Mary Cunningham at the DAF he's just, he writes home to his wife on the evening of the 21st of October so two days before Alamein opens up he says, if there's anything I have not yet done, it is too late now. <laughs> and actually, the two uh, – he, he, Tommy Elmhurst left a very, very good description of these dinners. So every yeah. night they have these dinners, and they now have combined dinners because they've yeah. got combined headquarters. And Montgomery is very into introducing topics of conversation to kind of jolly things along. And on the last night, on the, on the the uh, or rather on the 21st of October, the discussion the, – the topic for discussion is – the young married officer is the curse of the services. Discuss. <laughs> ah, Monty, go on being uh, well, Monty. Well, Elmhurst says it's the first time any of us have seen Montgomery really unbend and be very human. <laughs> really? Yeah, and, and he was very good because he had all his, you know, all his liaison officers and, hmm. and, and ADCs would all join him and stuff. I mean, one of those people was a guy I interviewed called Carol Mather, who'd actually yeah. um, um, uh, you know, tried to join the, the, the ski battalion, then ended up in lay force, going out of the commandos, mm. then went back into the desert, then then joined the SAS, was involved in all those sort of big shoot-ups of airfields in yeah. the summer of 1942. And then at the last minute, Monty got hold of him and, and said, would you come back and be a, be an ADC to me? And he knew him because his um, Betty, Montgomery's late wife, had been very good friends with Carol Mather's mother. Yeah. And just after um, Betty had died, um, Carol Mather, then a 17-year-old, had been sent to Monty's house to kind of keep him company. Yeah. So they knew yeah. each other really, really well. Yeah. Um, and Carol Mather was given a jeep and told to just sort of be the liaison man between Monty and all his various corps and divisional head commanders. So he knew every corner of the battlefield, spent the whole time sort of beetling back and forth, left, right, and center, but was also party to these dinners, these amazing dinners with, you know, de Gangan and um, his chief of staff and, and, and Monty himself and and Mary Cunningham and Tommy Elmhurst and all the rest of it. I mean, it must have been a most extraordinary period and, and what, what an incredible experience. But. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and uh, Monty, after all, as a widower, probably did, you know, on reflection, regard the married officer as the, you know, because he was 100% focused on his job and all that, all that, all that sort of stuff. So, so um, the, the minefields are prized, uh, are prized open. Yeah, um, that's the, the idea. Or at least in theory, an enormous shoot goes in. Yeah, the um, barrage, the opening barrage, is something of of um, uh, you know. And I've been, I've been lucky enough to talk to people who, who witnessed it. I remember talking to Tommy Thompson, who was a who'd actually been a Spitfire pilot, a Hurricane pilot on in in Malta back in the day. Hmm. Was now with the Desert Air Force, and he'd been flying. He was on a in a night 
fighter squadron. Yeah. Uh, and was flying his hurricane over, over the battle when it opened up. And he said all you could see was just this long orange ripple all the way down, you know, for 40 miles. Um, and, and my old friend Giuseppe Santaniello, um, who was in the, you know, on the Trento in line with the Matara Ridge, wrote an infinite number of flashing tongues of light intersecting one another and spreading in an immense semicircle which stretched as far as I could see. Then a whistling, whispering inferno exploded on top of us. As hard as I tried, I could not get a grip of myself. I mean, who can blame him? I mean, who can, who, who can blame him? Um, uh... and, back in, and, and, and back at Caledon Camp, what does Alex signal to WSC? Zip! Zip! It's, yeah. it's happening. Yeah. Churchill's very excited. Well, and, 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 up, they, and, and up they go. And, and of course, um, attacking is really difficult. It's, the, um, <laughs> it's really difficult. Really, really, really difficult. And my and friend Albert Martin, he's part of, you know, he's part of 10 Corps. He's yep. seven motor brigade. Yep. He's part of the, ta- the, 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 the minefield task force. And of course, you know he's walking along these. You know he's in, no, he's in trucks. He's in Bedford's, kind of moving along this minefield behind the sappers, and they can't see any tins with stars and suns and moons at all. Of course not. You know the whole thing's just you know because because in that northern part of the battlefield, it's very sandy. Yeah, it's so really up comes sandy the dust. Um, speaking- up comes dust. Well, you're grinding that. You're grinding all that sand. Yeah. Yeah. into even finer sand, and yeah. suddenly it's, it's yeah. like ta- chucking talcum powder up in the air yeah. or flour or something. Um, uh, apart from the gigantic artillery barrage, <laughs> what warning do um, Africa Corps? What you know? Have they been taking prisoners to find out what's going on? What, what you know? No, the, they don't. The they don't, they don't really know. I mean, they, they. I mean, the interesting thing is that Monty's big into his deception plans, and he's and he's you know he's hired Jasper Masculine, who was this magician, to do it. Who's an illusionist to kind of you know do feints and all the rest of it and put up but there dummies. is a, and there is a big full-on de- deception plan isn't there um, the deception plan yeah just up, up up on the coast you know looks like a naval attack yeah operation um, Bertram. and they that's right and they put lots of pipes and fake trucks and stuff and, and they they do lots of um extra tracks down to the south to make it look like there's a huge build-up of forces down there but the axis aren't fooled at all because they know they don't know the detail, but they know it's coming in the north because yeah, yeah, they do, and it's obvious. Well, and what would you because what, of prisoners? And also, what would what would you do? You know, and what um, would you do? So, it, so it, all it, this it's all about the road and the railway. Yeah. There's, you know, people like to write books about you know Jasper Masculine and you know how he changed the course of the war and World War Two and all this kind of stuff. And it's just the absolute magician nonsense. It was com- who it was won the war. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Makes like that. He conjured up a diversion. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ! Don't. Yeah. But, but it has no effect whatsoever. Yeah, as the acrid stench of cordite wafts across the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the acrid stench of, of cordite um, <laughs> and the fog of war was in its ascendancy, but, I think it's but, fair to so, say. So the, 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 the axis are kind of kind of caught on the hop. There's also nothing that you not, not, not much you can do when you're on the receiving end of it. Well, they, they know it's going to come at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it's a yeah. full moon, and, you know, yeah. that's suggestive. Yeah. Um, and Mor- Rommel's away still, so that's also suggestive. Yeah, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but you know, for the people who are trying to do this, so, so the so the Highland Division disappear off, the New Zealanders disappear mm. off into the into the darkness. You know, once the once the barrage dies yeah. down, then they're behind this creeping barrage. Yeah. 
struggling to the to, to one of these lanes are, are, are my old friends of Sherwood Rangers and actually it's 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 Stanley Christopherson and his A squadron of Crusaders who are spearheading this yeah. um, and, and one of his Crusaders breaks down before they even reach the start point um, and they reach the first enemy minefield at 4 a.m so this is quite a long way down the line having passed through the New Zealanders and eventually they get through they advance about 200 yards um, by this point it's dawn um, uh, and then it's um, there are the anti-tank guns of the enemy, um, some of which are kind of you know only fifty yards away. Total mayhem. Five cruisers knocked out. Um, they still haven't quite sorted out their radio discipline, so they've been they've been trained into how they should be using radio, and they still use their own one. So Sam Garrett, who's in his, who's one of his um, troop commanders, shouts out, "Edward, I've been hit twice. Tank on fire. I'm evacuating." And Flash Kellett, who is the CEO of the entire regiment, goes, get off the bloody air and your name is King, not Edward. <laughs> Actually, Sam Garrett's fine. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. And, and, and Christopherson is, you know, imagine, you know, suddenly dawn creeps over the, over the desert, that, you know, the darkness is gone. And suddenly you realise you're the wrong side of the Mitaraya yeah. Ridge. Yeah. And before you are enemy anti-tank guns. Behind you is a massive traffic jam that you can't do anything about. And he says, it was quite, quite the worst moment of my life. I couldn't go forward, but all the heavy tanks were behind me. So I couldn't go back on account of them and the, and the minefield. We just had to sit there. But the interesting thing is, is, is um, Von Toma doesn't order a counterattack. Yeah. Because he knows that they haven't got much fuel. Yeah. Yeah. And he thinks, is- this is not the moment. Which, which is which is fascinating because it probably if if there is a moment um it, uh it, it's then isn't it, it, it yeah. is it, it because after all what you have is a, a duke army gaining in confidence as this battle runs forward yes. and a, 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 a vigorous counterattack then and there might have might have made you know might have meant another because there is a change of plan a little later but might have meant a bigger one sooner and i think um it, it is fascinating that, that he misses the moment there. You wonder if Rommel were in town, um, whether he'd have ordered a counterattack then and there regardless. You suspect he probably would have done. Yeah, I think he, I think. And I he think knows, he could, uh, and Von Tommen knows he's been told that there's a, there's a consignment of fuel coming on the 26th. Yeah. yeah. So he kind of, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And he, yeah. and he, and he doesn't. And, and so the response is, is not great, but it's also not as heavy as it might be. And, and the truth is, is later that morning, the Sherwood Rangers, along with the leading, other leading uh, um, uh, armoured formations in the Southern Corridor, do manage to pull behind the Mitaraya Ridge. And that's good news because from there, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're protected from direct fire. And our friend Giuseppe Santanello is absolutely right in the firing line because he is at the end of the Mitaraya Ridge. That, that is where he is with his Trento division. And he says, the battle is filled with the noise of tracks on the move, of machine guns, of armor-piercing rounds, of 88s, everything covered in the dust thrown up by the tanks, like the wake of ships in a sea of sand. Good description, that. That's very strong. Very strong. strong. But um, uh, the infantry, so the infantry get to, uh, pretty much get to Oxalic, don't they? Yeah, not quite. Not quite, but they pretty much... Yeah, the, the Aussies do well. The Aussies are in the yeah. northern corridor, and yeah. they do pretty much get to, to Oxalic. It's the southern corridor where they don't, where they've got this sort of, they've, they've got the the, the Mitaraya Ridge to kind of deal with. 
and, and the Aussies sort of do do go forward. The, the, the Axis forces have another problem is, is that General Stummer, who is the um, acting commander of the, the Panzer Army, goes forward in the morning um, and, and he gets out of his command car and, and, and shells whistle over. He hurries back in and as he's getting back in, he suffers a massive heart attack and dies. So that's him. So Von Thoma, who is the acting commander of the Africa Corps, then has to become the acting, acting commander of the Panzer Army. You know, it's not, it's not a great start for the Axis, to be fair. No, no. Um, and in the South, um, 7th Armoured Division, are just, they don't even breach the minefield at all. They, they're, they're really struggling. Uh, they do enough to keep 21st Panzer on their toes and, and the Arietta Division tied down, but, but nothing more than that. So there's no slipping of 21st Panzer or the Arietta up to the north or anything like that. Yeah, um, yeah. And in the far south, the Free French don't, don't dislodge the, the whole Gory at all from the, the Hermimac. No. So that's the end of the first day. Pretty much. Pretty much. Um, we're going to take a break and then we're going to try and do the rest of this battle in, um, in an episode, but, you know, you never know. <laughs> Yeah, we'll get it. We'll get it done. We'll get it done. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, the second battle of El Alamein is underway. Well, at least we've done the first day. Um- <laughs> <laughs> well, so so that night, yeah. that night, the, the Aussies who have done the best, they're, they're ordered to sort of attack again that night. Yeah. Um, and the 51st Highlanders are all also pushing forward. Uh, and there's this load of descriptions of them, of them doing that, you know, behind the guns, the smoke, the sand. You see these figures under the flares, sort of, you know, spectral, disappearing out of view into the clouds of smoke and, yeah. and dust, but playing their bagpipes. Yes, of course. Uh, and, and lots of people just say it's the, it was the most profoundly haunting sound I ever heard above the din of the, you know, the guns and everything you used to hear yeah. this sort of reedy uh, and there is something about the bagpipes isn't there that is a little bit haunting well I mean, yeah I mean, that's the, they're that's not everyone's the, taste that's the idea i mean the, 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 they're meant to put the willies up you in, in yeah meant to fortify you and put the willies up the other side um but so on the 24th though so yeah this so this is, is the, so this is a night of the 24th yeah 25th yeah so the and morning the, of the 25th yeah there hasn't been much progress. Sherwood yeah. Rangers are on the go again. Yeah. They get stuck again. Yeah. Um, get attacked by Stukas. All, a lot of soft skins are hit. 20 lorries are left blazing. Mm-hmm. Sappers are still struggling to clear these minefields. Um, and, and at, at 3.30 a.m. on the 25th, there's this – there's this – on the 26th, rather, the yeah. following day, there's this crisis talk. Um, only the Aussies seem to be making any progress. Yeah. So they try to kind of make all the emphasis on the on the Aussies' front, and, and they they capture a key feature called point twenty nine, which tells you just how low all this is. I mean, you know, that's twenty one nine meters above sea level. It's nothing feet to right above sea level, rather. Um, and, and there is this feeling that it's sort of going absolutely nowhere. And you know, so it's the morning of the twenty sixth, Monday the twenty sixth. Yeah. Yeah. Of October. At, at, at the TAC HQ, which is a Burgal Arab, which is a little bit further back. Yeah. You know, Monty's in a bit of a pickle because the crumbling hasn't really got underway. There's certainly no breakout. Um, it, it's all just bogging down. It's all a bit stuck. Now, he said it was going to take 10 days to do this battle. So there's no... It's crisis talking so much that they've woken up, woken up Monty in the middle of the night 
to yes, talk about which, it. Which is absolutely um, uh, that's a no-no. Troy, isn't it? Because he likes yes. to go to bed and be woke uh, wake up in the morning, you know, so he's fresh. Fresh. You yes. don't you don't um, go and go. Excuse me, sir. Um, you, you don't do that. There is a sense of this isn't quite working. Do we need a plan B? Yeah. You know, they've they've lost three hundred tanks knocked out so far out of twelve hundred. Yeah. Which actually isn't as bad as it sounds because most of those are recoverable. Most of those are kind of, you know, tracks come off or mm, mm. engine damage. You know, they're not all kind of smoldering wrecks. But I do think it kind of, you know, I, th- I think this is the point where one discusses could there have been another way of doing this? You know, was was Monty right? I think, and, and, and I, it's interesting looking at what Tuca says about all this. Yeah. Because Tuca thinks there was another way. Yeah. And, and his first point is he thinks, you know, there should have been um, – he, he was in favour of a, of, of a much stronger More second conscious. thrust yeah. down yeah. A, b- below the Ruisa Ridge, which is south of the Mitterar Ridge. Yeah. And, and south of that long finger of minefields that extends 10 miles. Mm. So his view is that what you could do is that is, 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 is Go push around. into there. Go as far around the bottom as you can, scoop round – Scoot round, come round under, back. under the Folgori, through the seventeenth uh, Pavia, and 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 come up, clock the Arietti on your way through, right? Um, exactly that. And his big point about this is that the problem is the minefield. When you've got that level of overwhelming force, you know fundamentally you haven't really got an issue. You are going to win, but it's yeah. it, you, you, all your advantages are are completely stifled by the minefields. Yeah. So once you get out of that, sheer weight of numbers will ensure that you can't possibly lose. Um, and I suspect he's probably right, but his, but his biggest his biggest gripe is the use of the guns. Yes, he thinks the fire plan is, is isn't concentrated enough and is just basically too sort of too sort of uh, uh, vague, doesn't he? Is how he sees it. Well, well, it's 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 just too First World War. I mean, it yeah. just is. Yeah. You know, so you've got nine hundred guns. You've got. 400 in the northern thrust mm. because you've got these guns spaced equally all the way along the yeah. length of the line. But that means you've got more than 50%. You've got 500, which aren't in the main thrust. Mm. And you've got 300, which are being used in the thrust for 13 core, which gets absolutely nowhere and which yeah. fools nobody. Yeah. So wouldn't it have been better? So what that means is you've got one gun per the 45 yards. Yeah. And and he, he, you know, he suggests that actually a better option might have been to have 150 guns on the rest of the line and say 700 or 750 over a five mile stretch firing in concentrations and what he means by that is instead of your gun each gun firing straight in front of it that you have 750 guns firing over an area of you know a thousand yards yeah and then you move on to the next thousand yards and then you but move I the think, next thousand yards but i i think a lot of this is to do with uh, it's the thing we talked about in the last episode is Monty's trying to do things within what he knows Eighth uh, Army is actually capable of rather than trying to cook up things that in an ideal world they'd be able to do. And I, I, my, my, my feeling with, with Tuka is because he's an Indian Army man and he's got, he's got one of the sort of front line, you know, front end bits of the Indian Army in the fourth, form of the 4th Indian Division, you know, who, who've been raised as professionals and all that. I think... I think he's used to working with people who um, are, I'm not going to say more competent, but have their act together a little bit more than some of the, you know, con- some of the civilian bits of the British Army. And I think, I think, 
Maybe a month later, you'd have been able to do this with the gunners with that extra bit of training, with extra bit of coordination. But this is a big part of how Monty fights the Eighth Army, but uh, uh, fights with Eighth Army at Alamein. He's saying, I'm going to fight with with us as we are. Uh, You know, uh, and, you know, half a loaf is better than, you know, the the whole loaf and all that sort of stuff. And what we're going to do is, is use the army within its capabilities rather than, completely shake up a reorganised. Because I think it's interesting that the Corps de Chasse, you know, Ten Corps is the extent of his sort of rebadging. Radicalisation. Re- yeah, rebadging, reorganisation, re, re, you know, uh, uh, centred around, you know, a, a fresh way of doing things. He doesn't apply it to the entire army because I think he knows... No, that- that's true. But I would have also said, say, you know, how hard is it to fire a concentration? I mean... Well, I don't know. I don't know where. What I mean, state- even if even if it's six hundred guns firing uh, on concentrations, you know, you, yeah, you, the, think- the idea that you fire fire in a box and then you move yeah, to no, the next I know, box. I know, I know, I know. But it, obviously, that's going to chew things up a lot more. But organisationally, are they? Uh, is the is the core of artillery there yet? And and so what you do is you, you you know you do a thing you know you can you do a thing you know you can pull off so that you pull it off so that you know because um, if it, let's say you do try these sort of concert fire concentrations, then it doesn't work. Everyone's going to go, it was your bright new bloody idea that went wrong for us. Well, except, and we haven't got to Supercharge yet. That's exactly what he does at Supercharge. That's I know, I know, which is, which is obviously, which, well, well, so maybe that's, maybe that, but maybe that's also Mon- Monty thinking, well, all right, then we're going to have to, we're going to have to get our finger out now. And that maybe, maybe yeah, he's I, I underestimated He's because uh, there is there is an element, of course, of one of one of the one of the problems with playing safe like this, which is what he's essentially doing, yeah, isn't it? Is that you might underestimate actually what people are capable of delivering to an extent, especially if their morals morale is on the uptick, which it is at this point. It's coming up, you know. It's been, yeah. the morale has been coming up in the run up to um, in the run up to uh, this battle. Because the training's good, because they're engaged with their commanders and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. I just sort of. I, I, and there I, aren't I, any, you know. But for example, there aren't any three point seven inch, which I guess again yeah. is a continuation of what you're saying. You know, that's just kind of a thought too many, perhaps. Yeah. But you know, I there are sort of two hundred ju- that aren't needed in the in the delta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. I know. But that. But then. But then, just look look back to July. What flat people got into. Uh, yep. you know, in the Delta, and maybe you don't want to. Maybe you don't want to. If you start taking anti-aircraft guns away from there, they might. You might generate another one. I mean, well, what, what what is interesting is, is generally speaking, he's concentrating his forces. So he pulls yeah. pulls some farmers out of the southern bit. Yeah, he pulls out New Zealand Division. Yeah, um, the Aussies are con- ordered to continue their drive. They're not happy because it's kind of you know fourth nine in a row, third nine in a row. Mm. Um, this then is potentially going to leave a gap for the fifty foot. You know where the fifty first Highland were. So they're ordered to shift up. The South yeah. Africans who haven't been part of the, of the battle are then moved into the line where the 51st Highlanders and the New Zealanders were. And Tuka's 4th Indian are then given a kind of a longer stretch yeah. but further down to the south. So the, the And Highlanders- the orders are that they would complete those manoeuvres by the 28th. So, so yeah. up until the 28th, there's going to be the grinding battle. They're just going to keep going, just grinding their way. Desert Air Force, RAF coming over every, you know, all, all the time, 24-7 pounding enemy lines and just seeing where they get to. But there is a recognition that there is going to need to be a phase two, even at this stage. Meanwhile, Hitler has rung up Rommel, who is in a sanatorium recovering from ill health, and and said, you know, this is what's happened. Rommel checks out of the sanatorium, hotfoots it back to the desert, is there by the evening of the 25th. 
immediately orders a counterattack. Um, and von Tommer already says, well, actually, I have actually finally committed 15th Panzer. They've been sort of counterattacking all day. <laughs> but they're then due to be massing again. By the time Rommel gets back, they're going to mass again for a, a concentrated effort on the 27th of October. And this is going to be the first main coordinated counterattack. And this is all around a place known as Kidney Ridge, isn't it? Yeah, so at the same time, the um, 7th Motor Brigade and the 2nd, um, which is the King's Royal Rifle Corps and yeah. the 2 Rifle Brigade, have been pulled out of the minefield task force um, and they're now in, back in their role as, as principally as anti-tank gunners and they're told to move forward, which is through the, um, the Southern Corridor to this area, um, uh, which is sort of towards the Pearson line, which is the next sort of major line, and a feature called the Kidney Ridge. Yeah. Which isn't a ridge at all. It's actually a little... Well, it's a ridge because between it are two very, very, very shallow hollows. And when I'm talking about shallow (laughs) hollows, they're so shallow you can barely notice you're you're in them. One of which is codenamed Snipe, and the other one is codenamed Woodcock. Yeah. And the Rifle Brigade get into Snipe position with their six six pounders by dawn on the 27th of October. And when the sun rises up and they, you know, behind them and lights up the desert, what they realize is that they're in the major assembly area for where the panzers are going to be doing their counterattack. Yeah. And they suddenly think, yikes. And they've been assured that two armored brigades from, from, um, from first armored division are going to come to their support and they do tentatively come support. Seven Sherman tanks probably get brewed up. And yeah. then they pull back. And the reason why the armor brigades don't go full force is because they know the supercharge, the next phase of the battle, is just around the corner. And they need to kind of sort of keep certain powder dry. So yeah. suddenly, Second Rifle Brigade, much more so than the King's Royal Rifle Corps at, at Woodcock, which is only kind of, you know, a mile away, um, suddenly find themselves completely isolated. Yeah. But actually, it's a catastrophe for Rommel. And his Panzer Corps, because suddenly you've got this screen of anti-tank guns who are blocking your advance. And, you know, a six-pounder anti-tank gun, you know, a thousand yards is no problem at all. And, yes. and over the course of the day, they managed to destroy over 50 vehicles, you know, and something like 37 tanks. You know, well, when you've only got 200 tanks in the first place, and you've already had some attrition already. Yeah. That's kind of a third to 50% of your tanks force just gone just like that in one day's action. Yeah, that's really, really bad news. Uh, it, that 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 is that is effectively fight fifteen pounds and gone as an effective fighting so, force. So in effect, I mean, the, the you know, I mean, obviously there's been some luck of the draw here, but but by by prompting the Germans essentially to counterattack, and by the Germans, although the the Germans delaying in choosing to counterattack. Yeah. They've actually set it's at that is a like a perfectly sprung trap, actually. Yes, I mean, no, no, it's of an course, accident. it doesn't seem that way if you're a member of the rifle. Brigade. No, no, of course, no, of course, absolutely no, it doesn't one bit. But it is interesting that that what you've got there is sort of is um really the way things are going to end up going eventually, which is what you do is you attack the enemy in order to provoke him into counterattacking, and then you destroy him in the counterattack, and and. Which is exactly what the Germans have been doing for years. That's exactly. how they destroy First Armoured Division. It's yeah. just that we're seeing it from the perspective of the anti-tank gunners yeah. rather than from the German perspective. And from the anti-tank gunners, it's like 
holy moly, we're right in the crossfire here. This is not what we bargained for. Yeah. Oh, my God, oh, my God. And, yeah. you know, casualties are falling. I mean, they, the, the two rifle brigade lose 72 casualties that day, which I would say, actually, out of a whole battalion is, is kind of not a lot in the big scheme of things for such an intense engagement. And the number of deaths are, you know, third of that, quarter of that, I don't know. Mm. But, you know, they're not, they're not huge in the big scheme of things. Um, they run out of ammunition by dusk, and right. they're kind of holding on there. And they're thinking, well, we can't pull out until night falls. But as we all know, in the desert, night falls very quickly. They're expecting the armor to come up and take over their positions. They don't. So eventually they just go, okay, right, well, we're going to pull out anyway yeah. at 10.30 at night. So they pull back at 10.30 at night. Yeah. They're all absolutely spent. I mean, you know, there's the, you know, carriers have been knocked out. You know, there's been these sort of, you know, countless acts of unbelievable heroism. But around the desert are these kind of, you know, 30-plus tanks, which are kind of brewing and smoldering and blackened. Mm little sort of pinpricks of smoke rising up into the sky. There's all these sort of, you know, shot up ammunition lorries and all the rest of it. I mean, it's been a, it's been an amazing day for the rifle brigade and indeed for the whole of 8th Army and, and for Monty's attack in the north. And it's absolutely put the brakes on on, on, on the major counterattack. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, it's, it's a, a catastrophe for Rommel. I mean, Albert Martin, you know, my old friend, I mean, he's really interesting. I mean, he's, he, he says, is it possible to put into words the emotions of soldiers who have now reached safety after long hours when death or crippling, um, uh, or crippling could happen at any second, any second during those interminable hours? The usual words of pleasure, relief, happiness, thankfulness are all totally inappropriate. Substitute, bewilderment, incomprehension, drained, numbed, or disbelief. I mean, you can imagine, can't you? They're just absolutely phased out but what that that day prompts a pause you know rommel's spent yep. Yep. he's got to think about what he's going to do with his 164th light division he's got to wonder whether any more ships are going to come in and whether he's going to get any more supplies up while monty's got to kind of completely reorganize everything they, they, yeah. they, they consolidate the gains they've made they're basically through the bulk of the, of, of the minefields now they're holding those positions tenaciously um the aussies are through they're fighting around a series of low buildings, which are just north of the railway track, um, yep. and uh, and up in that that sort of near near Isa, um, up round there, up towards the coast, and it's reorganise your troops, think of Plan B, and then do another major coordinated yep. assault. Yeah, and that's going to be called supercharge. Part one is had been lightfoot. This is now supercharge. And and Seventh Armoured, so Seventh Armoured are, are, are redirected, aren't they, from the south, where yeah. they've where they've yep. been involved in the the uh, Free French Battle against, around the Monassib Depression and uh, against the Folgori. So they're they're redirected completely. They but are, think, but it's still going to be Ten Corps who are going to lead the lead yeah, supercharge. Yeah, yeah. But it's I mean it's very interesting that you know that um, Monty feels he can handle handle Eighth Army to the point where he, he you know he read, re, I mean it's thing is it's a small relatively small battlefield um in this respect isn't it I mean well, that northern not, bit yeah that northern bit so he's redirecting redirecting at will um which I think is which is pretty interesting it's sort of miles away from what um you know the yeah. sort of pe- piecemeal stuff that Eighth Army have done before this is oh, okay. yeah no, this is you know he he's this is this is right hold what you've got yeah. But let's reorganize our reserves, pull back certain certain units, and let's 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 reorganize and launch on a major a major proper offensive. And he mm. plans to to launch it on a much smaller punch, a single punch, three yeah. miles rather than ten, concentrated artillery, firing in concentrations as we discussed earlier on. Yeah. 
And the plan is to is to exploit the success of the Australians and attack yeah. through that very, very northern corridor. The only thing is that that Alexander has ultra clearance yeah. and has picked up that the 164th Light Division is going to be attacking, counterattacking through there. That's Rommel's plan on the on the second of November. Yeah. And so he quietly has a word with Duganga and says, I think it might be a good idea for you to suggest to Monty that it might be much better to attack, you know, through the Mitaraya yeah. region rather than north of that. Um, do you hear what I'm saying? And <laughs> and Deganga goes, yes, absolutely got it, Chief. Yeah. And Deganga says, I wonder whether it might be a good idea to, to do this. What, what, do you, what do you think? And so sort of planting the idea in Monty's mind, and Monty goes with it and then takes all the claim, obviously. Yeah, yeah of course, yeah. Um, what that means is on Monday, the 2nd of November, at 1.05 a.m., the supercharged barrage begins, and this time it really is concentrated yeah. force. And they haven't got as far to go through the minefield this time, you know, so that so it's it's just the challenge is is much depleted. Yep. As are the Axis forces by this stage. You've just been attrited. So in, to, to to a certain extent the crumbling, the dogfight that Monty calls it has worked because it's unquestionably ground down. I mean fifteen panzer basically doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Twenty first panzer is still stuck in the south. Um 164th light is about to be engaged, but suddenly this this huge weight of force, and this is a proper proper schwerpunkt, yeah, you know, concentration of force on this thing in a way that it hasn't been at Lightfoot, yeah, um, at the start of the anime battle, um, and and yeah, the game is up basically. That that yeah. that as a, as night disappears and dawn rises over the battlefield, it's kind of all over, and and one of the big sort of one of the I remember lots of people have noticed there was this sort of there's this sort of crossroad of tracks in the minefield where there's this dead German mm. and people like Carol Mather who are kind of, sort of you know an ADC who's beetling about from one one kind of unit to another every day he's passing past this dead German and every day it gets more and more covered in dust so that it's by this stage it's just this white spectral figure yeah. as though it's been sort of sack of flour dolloped over it and it's kind of again sort of symbolic of the fate of of the, of the Axis forces and the, and the, and yeah. the Africa Corps and they get through and on that evening of the second you know the, the, his second counterattack is you know it's non-starter before it's even started yeah. you know 164 flight forget it it's not going to happen there's a general disengagement and actually Rommel really wants freedom of movement and he thinks there's no way I can just send a signal knowing Hitler as I do I need to send someone over there. So he sends one of his, his, his junior officers, um, a chap called Leutnant Burnt, to go and fly to mm. Hitler's headquarters and go and speak to him in person and tell him face-to-face -face that he wants what Rommel needs is freedom of action at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and meanwhile, overnight, by the following morning, von Tommer and Bearline, who was the chief of staff of the um, Fritz Bearline, the chief of staff of the, um, of the Africa Corps, report that they've only got 30 panzers left by this point. Yeah. And, and the Brits are already at Tel, Tel Akakir. And Tel Akakir is this kind of trig point on the map, which is beyond the Sidi El Rahman track. And that's yeah. very much the kind of, you know, by that point, by, by the time you get into the Sidi El Rahman track, you kind of, you know, you're 10 miles from where they started. And, and the Sidi El Rahman track, the Rahman track runs at kind of, if you're thinking about it, a clock, a clock face, it, it runs at sort of seven o'clock 
Mm. So in a kind of sort of north to south westerly direction. But it's kind of north north south. Yeah. If you saw what I mean. Or rather south south west. Yeah. That's probably the, the right way to do it. And they've got past there and, and past that, you know, you're well clear of the of the minefields. And that weight of armor which still exists, that kind of, you know, five hundred, six hundred tanks that they can still call upon, you know, that that's an overwhelming number, you know, when you're against thirty seven or thirty or whatever. There are no answers left. Um and then then the report comes back at midday from Hitler. And uh, and it's not quite what everyone was hoping, it's fair to say. <laughs> and Hitler says in the situation in which you find now find yourself, there could be no other consideration save that of holding fast, of not retreating one step, of oh, throwing f- every gun and every man into the battle. Despite his numerical superiority, the enemy too will reach the end of his resources. It would not be the first time in history that the stronger will has prevailed against the stronger yeah. battalions of the enemy. You can yeah. show your troops no other um, way than that which leads to victory or to death. Shut up your face. I mean, yeah, honestly. As you can imagine, that's not really what they want to hear. But it's yeah, it too late. Well, I mean, yeah. the bottom line is it's too late. You yeah. know, they're, they're on the way. And, you know, our friend Giuseppe Santaniello goes, all is chaos and confusion. Nothing is clear. From time to time, we stop. Lorry follows Lorry in a cloud of thick black dust. <laughs> and by the following day, the fourth, the fourth engines are on the charge. Chica's mob. Yeah. Um, they're well beyond the city Raman track. Um, and at 11 a.m., uh, Bearline's just been talking to Von Tommer, and he goes, right, it's time to go. And, uh, and and he pulls out, and he's just getting back into his truck where he sees kind of 500 yards away. You can see Von Tommer suddenly becomes surrounded, and he sees these Tommies with their tin helmets coming towards them. And Von Tommer's standing there with that, that kind of rather cool kind of baseball yeah. cap kind of thing that the Africa Corps had, um, and his goggles on, yeah. and, a, and a canvas satchel over his, over his shoulder. And he sees sees the Tommies getting him and, and, and Toma, Von Toma holding, uh, you know, putting his hands up and he's been surrendered. And no sooner does that happen than suddenly this bursting across the vetch through the through the desert is this kind of sort of massive armor and yeah. and, and 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 half tracks and not half tracks, but but you know, armor and um and and carriers and whatnot, and he just thinks that's it, you know, it's literally the kind of force of eight bombers just sweeping towards him. And so Bayerline at that point just sort of hurries off and, and disappears off into to, to does, safety. Does Fontoma have to have dinner with Montgomery? Am I right in thinking that? He has to have dinner Poor with Montgomery. Poor <laughs> Yeah, where Montgomery tells him what he got all wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, what's interesting is that is that... And the battle so is over. You know, the battle is it. over. The, the, um, the, there's, a, there's a sort of boring debate about whether um, uh, 8th Army pursue... I'm firmly with Monty on this, by the way. ...pursue um, Rommel hard enough. And, and yep. we go back to the point we keep making in this, that is that Montgomery is being very, very careful with 8th Army. He's being very... He is being cautious. And the reason about what he gives it to do, and the reason for that is because previously it's been given stuff to do it's incapable of. And yep. he knows... He knows that the surest way to wreck an army is to um, have its reach exceed its grasp, essentially. And Completely. so he's thinking, well, we're gonna, we've got that right. We'll take our time. We'll learn our lessons. There's tor- torches and happening. And we'll retreat. They're, they're t- they can't recover from this. Yeah. We'll just go after them. Torches happening anyway. We'll pursue them at our leisure. Um, and it, 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 it's and very. In- the bottom line is 
They do, and they're incredibly successful at it. Yes, I know. And the bottom line is they do, and they're incredibly successful at it. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, what, what's interesting, though, is uh, uh, Monty says the, the moral effect of air action is very great, and out of all proportion, the material damage inflicted. And this is this becomes, you know, the yes. great leitmotif of the Allied way, way of war, actually, after uh, really after the desert. In the reverse direction, the sight and sound of our own air forces operating against the enemy have an equally satisfactory effect on our troops. A combination of the two has a profound influence on the most important single factor in war, morale. And there it is. There you go. There you go. And the, 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 what this... The single most important factor in war. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And, and, yeah. and, and you, you, you simply cannot argue with that. And then you, I mean, and then of course Churchill's. Then he gets Churchill gets to say it may almost be said before Alamein we never victory after Alamein we never a defeat, and you know the almost the almost is is sort of load bearing there C- carries carries a great deal of uh, weight the almost in that, but he, it's essentially right. And and um, I think what's I think what's so interesting about this battle is it is is obviously all the, the sort of all the all the sine waves in the allied uh, progress to effort all all arc at the same point for this for this battle they all co- they coincide it's like a yep. it's like when you see when when you see a, a in, in my line of work when you see a comedian finally figure out how to write and perform at the same time that the two things coincide with each other and the audience get the joke it's like it's that moment where the you know however when you put it the planets align the ducks are in a row yeah and from then on um, you know, the, the le- it's not just that the lessons have been learned, but learned, but but the effect upon morale within Eighth Army that they are the people yeah. who win this first colossal blow. And you know, I know Mont- Montgomery has to change his plan, but basically, you have you have the two the two sort of features of the Montgomery way of doing things. You've got crumble crumbling and a colossal crack, which is what this battle boils down yeah. to. Lightfoot's yeah. the crumbling. Uh, supercharges the colossal. Supercharge, crack. you can't fault. Supercharges is is, yeah. is brilliantly planned, brilliantly executed, and one of the reasons it's brilliantly executed is, of course, because they haven't got this huge, massive, great depth of minefield to get through anymore. Yeah, yeah. and they haven't got the weight of numbers on the other side, even when they get there. Yeah, and, and and they've also got growing confidence. There is this feeling that, which is obviously tied into morale, but there is this feeling that that it's working. That is working. That we're, we're, we've got this. We are now on the cusp of a great victory. Yeah. This is a, this is a, a, a British-led victory. Commonwealth Duke forces yeah. crushing an Axis army in the field for the first time in the war. Yeah, yeah. And that's a that that that's a big thing. And obviously, compared to the you know, you can't get into this kind of oh yeah, but compared to the numbers east in front, it's not like that. It's about it's about you know numbers. You cannot conflate numbers with strategic importance yeah exactly and you you know especially if this is the british doing it doing it their way where what you do is you fight the opponent somewhere that's inconvenient for him to fight you and on your terms and on your terms um and so the german material material expenditure to run the panzer armee is far in excess of what it would cost to run that sized army in Europe because you've got that much further to supply it. You've got that much more effort, fuel to supply it, yep. stuff to get ships, the whole thing. Yep. If you look at it in terms of fuel, 
steel and embuggerance, the yes. place the place the place you want to defeat the Germans is in North Africa, if you're the British. Well, you know what we should do? Next May we should do a Tunisia week. All right. Okay. Well, then we, can, well, then we can continue this epic song. Well, we've we've got to the end of we've actually managed to get to the end. Of yeah, yeah. Six uh, six so, hours later. So, um, John, six John, hours of desert <laughs> war. <laughs> well, um, if we well, haven't I've shaken, enjoyed it enormously, I've well, if we haven't say. shaken the listeners off by now, um, we. <laughs> We need to we need to end with something we, we, also well, rather we, special. Whatever we haven't if we shake them off with this thing, we never will. It's the I think the, the way I'd put it. Yeah, um, that's one way of thinking. I mean, I, I think, was going to say we still got your little treat at the end. So I have a poem by John Jarmain, who was in the 61st Anti Tank Regiment Royal Artillery, attached to the 51st Highland Division. Um, and so he fought, he fought at El Alamein, um, and then uh, in Sicily, and then he was killed in. Uh, Normandy. Hmm. It's buried in the airborne six airborne cemetery at Royalville. Ah. Um, uh, killed on the twenty sixth of June while driving down to inspect his troops at dawn. But he wrote a poem. This poem about El Alamein. There are flowers now, they say at El Alamein. Yes, flowers in the minefields now. So those that come to view that vacant scene where death remains and agony has been, will find the lilies growing, flowers and nothing that we know. So they rang the bells for us and Alamein, bells which we could not hear. And to those that heard the bells, what could it mean? The name of loss and pride, El Alamein. Not the murk and harm of war, but their hope, their own warm prayer. It will become a staid historic name, that crazy sea of sand. Like Troy or Agincourt, its single fame will be the garland for our brow, our claim. On us a fleck of glory to the end, and there our dead will keep their holy ground. But this is not the place that we recall, the crowded desert crossed with foaming tracks, the one blotched building lacking half a wall, the grey-faced men, sand powdered over all, the tanks, the guns, the trucks, the black, dark-smoking wrecks. So be it. None but us has known that land. Al-Alamein will still be only ours. and those ten days of chaos in the sand, others will come who cannot understand. We'll halt beside the rusty minefield wires and find there flowers. Very good. Thanks for listening, everyone. Let the yep. church bells ring throughout the realm. Cheerio. Bye-bye.